Oh, that's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Good day. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, also 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is uh, November the 25th, 2014. Uh, Or is it the 24th? Oh, dear, dear. (laughs) I'm afraid, yes. 25th. Thank you, Wesley, you see. Uh, If I have enough senior moments, that'll get me to the end. The 25th it is. That's what I thought in the first place. Turkey time. Oh, scratch all that. I I put together for the last two weeks all these brilliant reviews of, oh, so many masterpieces on television, you know. There's a biography of Dylan Thomas, a feature film on the BBC. I watched it three times. It made me weep, you know. Oh, he even reads his poems. Get it, get it if you have a chance. Uh, it's difficult because even on the, uh, even when you switch it on demand, there's some commercials on it, but it's Dylan Thomas and the show is called A Poet in New York. If you have to just go down, you know, by the titles, start with poet. A poet in New York. Uh, now that's for you culture vultures. Uh, for the rest of us, I've had a pretty bad 24 hours. I uh, keep telling myself that I'm too old to take these things, you know, uh, take these things to heart, that I should just be a philosopher and sit in my chair and take notes because, of course, it's just history. Fifty years ago, it was history. I sat in my classroom and tried to talk to my uh, black students in Oakland. Uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, and we sat there, yes, half a century ago, 68, that was not quite half a century. And um, I didn't realize that they weren't interested in uh, reading his I Have a Dream speech. I, I had copied it out, you know, uh, and gave copies, and I tried to be, what you call that, I tried to be sane and reasonable, and of course, the school 
closed down by 11 o'clock that morning. A lot of broken windows. Too many police running up and down the halls. And then it was just a question of trying to help the kids that were uh, in trouble there, you know. Uh, Never mind, I'm sure you've heard most of those stories. What I did do last night to try to get my head together and be, uh, be, what is the word? Not philosophical, but to be, uh, soothing about this and not to, to rage, you know? I finally found, uh, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. That's one of the things I gave to my students, uh, half a century ago. That was before he was assassinated. You know, in civics, they're supposed to learn about the rule of law. And uh, Martin Luther King tried to explain the reasons, you know, for breaking laws and how to do it well and... uh uh, how to be what he called a non-violent gadfly. I think uh, today we'll just read a few excerpts from Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail. Try to keep that in the front of my brain as I watch more and more children being put in danger all over the country because we're having... Uh, <laughs> what are we having... Somebody called it a race riot. Uh, somebody in my building, I heard them talk about race riots. Anyway, uh, this is Martin Luther King. These are quotes. Now, last time, years ago, I remember reading some of this on the air. And I got some nutty letters, and I had to explain that it was not my opinion. It was the words of Martin Luther King, Jr. He writes... Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having non-violent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. History is a long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But groups are more immoral than individuals. And uh, this letter was written uh, in response to some letters from the uh, uh, clergy, the men of the cloth who had uh, written to Martin Luther King. He was in jail for uh, protesting the unjust laws uh, uh, of his time, the Jim Crow laws, right? Um, He answers these men by saying, You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. 
This is certainly a legitimate concern since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. It's rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking uh, laws, breaking some and obeying others. Hmm. Yes, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others, one may well ask. The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. I hope you can see the distinction I'm trying to point out. (laughs) One who breaks an unjust law must do it openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and willingly accepts the penalty by staying in jail to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the very highest respect for law. Of course, now there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It has been... uh, sublimely expressed in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, uh, yes, (laughs) to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. Uh, It was practiced, yes, superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. We can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. Everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. Without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. 
if I have said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I put a footnote here. Uh, I remember passing out the above quotations to my students. Uh, it would be in 1968, right? Uh, before that, too, 65. I remember several times getting into an argument over King's letter. Uh, the children preferred, well, they liked the synthesis of Edmund Burke. Back in 1770, before our revolution, Edmund Burke said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Today, we're in a lot of confusion, a lot of mixed-up confusion. I tried to listen to uh, talk radio this morning all over the... Uh, <laughs> all over the media, and I just, uh, I cringed. You can make out a case for damn near anything, you know, and apparently, uh, <laughs> apparently it's a question of style. Yes, that's it, style. Uh, I'm not quite sure uh, what people are after, why there is the... Uh, uproar we're having. I see what has happened, uh, and I assume that most of us would be more than willing to, uh, what is that, to practice a non-violent action protest, uh, to sit down in the streets and stay there for, oh, maybe a week, maybe two, maybe three. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I actually have no idea what is the proper response? Uh, that, I think, is why it's so painful. It doesn't do any good at this point uh, to burn things down or even to uh, uh, yell and scream and express rage. Uh, I've been thinking about that. I think maybe, maybe it is time for another march on Washington. I was thinking of the... Uh, the March of the Men on Washington. Uh, years and years and years ago, even before the death of Martin Luther King, I took a play by James Baldwin, and I took it over to the uh, play-reading committee in a suburban town, Lafayette, actually, and uh, I asked the play-reading committee, I said, don't you think that it would help raise consciousness uh, to put on James Baldwin's blues for Mr. Charlie. Now, Mr. Charlie is the liberal man caught in the middle. You know, he sees uh, the whole picture <laughs> and he doesn't quite know what to do. Anyway, uh, Baldwin had this idea that he would write a play about these problems and how we should... Uh, how we should treat them and how the next generation uh, would deal with them. Now, there was an all-white play-reading committee, and they dismissed the idea of doing this play. They said, oh, they'd done all that civil rights stuff uh, last year. 
Yes. That's the stage. That's the, uh, you know, ignore it. Blow it off, you know. Uh, anyway, in the introduction to Blues for Mr. Charlie, James Baldwin wrote that the play was based very distinctly indeed on the case of Emmett Till, a Negro youth who was murdered in Mississippi in 1955. He said he absolutely dreaded committing himself to writing a play. There were enough people around telling me I couldn't write novels, but he says, I began to see that my fear of the form masked a much deeper fear. That fear was that I would never be able to draw a valid portrait of the murderer. In life, obviously, such people, people baffle and terrify me. With one part of my mind, at least, I hate them and would be willing to kill them. Yet, with another part of my mind, I am aware that no man is a villain in his own eyes. Something in that man knows, must know, that what he is doing is evil. But in order to accept the knowledge, the man would have to change what is ghastly and really almost hopeless in our racial situation now is that the crimes we have committed are so great and so unspeakable that the acceptance of this knowledge would lead literally to madness. The human being then, in order to protect himself, closes his eyes compulsively repeats his crimes, enters a spiritual darkness which no one can describe. Now, I think Baldwin, uh, Baldwin is, is kind of, <laughs> I, I, I'm not quite sure he's, he's hit the nail on the head there. Uh, I'm not sure, but what, there are some psychopaths who are more than happy to, uh, to believe in the depths, the marrow of their souls, that uh, what they're doing is just right. Yes, kill the infidel. Of course, Baldwin's play is didactic. It's trying to teach the young. It's kind of like those plays written by Heinrich Ibsen and George Bernard Shaw. Mr. Charlie, the guy with the blues, that's today's white man. Baldwin says that uh, liberal white men, most of them, are Mr. Charlie. They're caught in the middle, damned if they do, and damned if they don't. I think this hit me hardest during the, uh, oh, I think it was almost a year uh, when there was this ferocious, uh, let's call it quarrel, uh, among liberals having to do with, uh, uh, oh, what was his name? Uh O.J., you remember, uh, I had several friends literally break up because they they couldn't separate. They couldn't separate the racism from the law. They did feel that the man had broken the law. Anyway, in that play, Blues for Mr. Charlie, James Baldwin wrote dialogues between Black Town and White Town between the individual and the state. My favorite passage in the play 
I should bring that. I should bring that to KPFA next time. Uh, it's a sermon. It's delivered by an archetypal character, an uh, omnipotent figure called Meridian. Meridian, that's the middle, the middle of things. Meridian's sermon deals with this strange land in which we all live and with the denial practiced by these strangers with whom we are surrounded. Meridian asks what he should tell the children. Should the next generation sustain the cruelty that has been visited on their parents? And if they do resist oppression, will they not one day find themselves in the same darkness where oppression lives? Ah, Baldwin certainly didn't believe that the battle could be won by becoming a master, that is, changing places with the oppressor. Uh, he did not wish to join the oppressive class. Uh, Tony Morrison, I remember said so many marvelous things at uh, James Baldwin's memorial service. That was 1987. She said that his was a vulnerability that asked for everything. Uh, she, she went on and she described his tenderness. She said that uh, James Baldwin's tenderness resembled the first turning in the womb it felt like a, a whisper in a crowded place. This is a quote from her um, words at the memorial. She said, I suppose that is why I was always a little bit better behaved when I was around you, wanting to deserve your love. How I loved your love. Today there is a great deal of confusion about what liberation leads to. <laughs> On the grand scale, yes, if what we want is a piece of the pie, then that's just what we'll get. If what we want is pie for everyone and justice, that means everyone. Then our work in the world will be like Baldwin's, fit for the ages. I tried to write something sensible on how to forgive the uh, man who is responsible, well, for the uh, <laughs> the poor guy who is, uh, well, he has managed to avoid coming to trial for his crimes. Let's not even, let's not even talk about him. Uh, I suppose he is a victim in his way. Uh, I don't know what that's all about. I know that fear is what drives these, uh, what do we call them, not racists, the, uh, the frightened people who are capable of killing what was this week's horror, of a little child with a toy gun. I remember my uh, youngest son back in the 60s, I... I complained because my children had some toy guns. They were gifts. And my younger son said, Mother, uh, use your brain. This is not a gun. This is a toy. <laughs> I 
I was just going to say, for this holiday, parents, whatever you do, don't buy your kids a toy gun or any kind of gun. Get rid of anything that looks like a gun. Of course, we know that in the past, uh, little things like wallets and cell phones have been uh, pointed to. Police have said that they thought the individual was uh, pulling a weapon. I don't know. I guess my mantra for the rest of my life is, I don't know. How is it possible to love the people who make these terrible mistakes, who, uh, I guess, out of some kind of uh, deep-seated fear, are willing to uh, to shoot, to kill these young children. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, it isn't the same kind of racism that I grew up with. It's more of a miasma. Toni Morrison has a book I recommend called Playing in the Dark from Harvard University Press. It's uh, essays. came out in 1992. And in that book, in that book, in one of the essays, Toni Morrison, Nobel Prize winner for literature, first black woman to be so honored. She writes, race, race has become metaphorical, a way of referring to and disguising forces, events, classes, and expressions of social decay and economic division far more threatening to the body politic than biological race ever was. It's so interesting listening to the uh, talk shows today. So many African Americans called into these radio shows and they put a disclaimer. Uh, first they said that they were doing very well, that they had uh, the advantages, that they were uh, part of the middle class. <laughs> we know what happened to Henry Louis Gates, that wonderful uh, scholar. He's on television all the time talking about, uh, uh, you know, our roots, the history of African Americans. And uh, he is a, a uh, what is it, public intellectual on a grand scale. But one time he came home and he lost his keys and tried to break into his own house. And, of course, the neighbors called the police and there was a big brouhaha. And uh, the president himself had to, I guess, have a beer with both of them and try to straighten them out. Uh, both of them were, I would say, the victims of this mythology, this uh, fear that uh, I, I've noticed lately. I thought, I thought that it had changed, at least here in Berkeley. And it's beginning, it's beginning to cloud over my world. I notice it on, uh, on the bus. Yes, the other day I noticed it on the bus. Isn't that a strange thing? It's 2014, folks. Fifty years ago, I thought that the children that I was teaching, you know, I thought that as soon as they developed self-esteem, 
and uh, you know that their identity politics was all worked out. Uh, I thought that would solve the problem. We had black is beautiful signs all over the classroom. Teachers would come in and they would say, well, does that mean that white is ugly? And the kids would, the kids would laugh and try to explain that socioeconomic mobility has nothing to do with color. And then another group of kids would say, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> the last time we had this battle, it was over. Ebonics, I remember saying that Ebonics was art speech. And a lot of people told me that, no, it was just bad grammar. Obviously, my confusion is part of the general confusion. Have a nice Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm thankful that most of us are still walking and still talking. Till next week at the same time. This has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The 44th annual KPFA Crafts Fair celebrates its new home at the Craneway Pavilion, located right on the Bay Trail next to the Rosie the Riveter Museum in Richmond, on December 20th and 21st from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. In this inspiring setting, the KPFA Crafts Fair offers over 200 professional artisans, craftspeople, and fair traders, proudly presenting their handmade work to you. There's live music from 11 to 5 each day and food catered by Assemble Restaurant. All proceeds benefit KPFA. The Craneway is 10 minutes by car from Berkeley, 5 minutes from the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge.